0: Morning Bethall. It's good to see you all this morning. All right, our scripture reading this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 12 to 24. Beginning in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Good morning,
1: Bethel. We're continuing through um, our study in 2 Corinthians. We started it last week, so if you um, missed out last week, if you weren't here, you can always um, catch up by listening online. Um, But we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 24 this morning. Um, So you might want to turn there now if you're not there already. So, leadership that is exploitative and abusive is pervasive in our world today. I don't imagine there's much pushback to that statement. Uh, All I have to do is say Harvey Weinstein, and you know what I mean. And then there's been this domino effect of other powerful people getting called out for their perverted abuse of power. Seems like daily recently, hasn't it? Um, new things coming out into the open. So these men exploited those weaker and more vulnerable for their own selfish pleasure. So sadly, this kind of exploitative and selfish use of power is also present in the highest office in our land. So on Thursday of this week, our president tweeted the following, I don't blame China I blame the incompetence of past administrations for allowing China to take advantage of the U.S. on trade, leading up to a point where the U.S. is losing hundreds of billions. How can you blame China for taking advantage of people that had no clue? I would have done the same. Did you catch that? He wrote, how can you blame China for taking advantage of people that had no clue? I would have done the same. So it's so much a part of his mode of operation that he doesn't even notice how despicable that statement is. So there's lots of examples that we could multiply at small and large-scale levels throughout our world. It permeates the health, wealth, religion industry Religion is certainly not immune from this kind of abuse of power. Instead, it can actually be a breeding ground. So these preachers have baptized the art of exploitation and greed. They are fleecing the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. So like Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6-5, these people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like this is a new problem that we're facing. Are you familiar with Ezekiel 34? Anybody? Turn back there for a minute. Ezekiel 34. So you can find that if you're using the Pew Bible. If you're not sure where Ezekiel is, on page 722. So God does not have kind words for so-called shepherds or spiritual leaders who are using their authority to exploit the weak for their own gain. So just look at the first six verses there of Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves... My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on an every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So, this dynamic of abusive power is all the more dangerous when the sheep don't recognize the abusiveness of the false shepherds. And that's actually what Paul is up against in Corinth. So, the Corinthians are kind of like a girl who leaves her loving friend who's been talking sense into her to go back to an abusive boyfriend. So then you can imagine the friend hearing that this happens. She comes running to the rescue. You know, Let's say you're that friend and you're knocking on the door and she opens the door and tells you to go away. Even kind of looking at you with this guarded suspicion. And there he is standing behind her, smiling. That's what's going on in Corinth with these false apostles who've come in to undermine Paul's leadership of them as their spiritual father. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians eleven eighteen. 18, a little bit later in the book. He says, You gladly bear with fools these so-called super apostles, being wise yourselves, he's being sarcastic here, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. Like, come on. So it's like spiritual Stockholm syndrome. You guys know what that is? Stockholm syndrome syndrome? This is a strange phenomenon when hostages develop empathy for or even allegiance to their captors. So the name comes from a bank robbery back in 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden, where these four hostages, after they were kind of released from from being held hostage, they had bonded with the bank robber or robbers or whatever, and after being released, they wouldn't testify in court. They were defensive of their captors. And that's kind of what Paul has been dealing with in Corinth. So he was their spiritual father. And when he came to visit, they were rebelling against him because they'd been influenced by these false apostles who'd crept in to undermine um, his leadership. So he's fighting for their faith. He loves them. He's laid his life down for them. He's not about to yield them up to false shepherds without a fight. So in doing so... What we get is the book of Second Corinthians, which is this really powerful example of what Christ like ministry looks like and sounds like. So that's why the title of the series is Cruciform Ministry. Because we're gonna learn how to love people well following Paul who is following Jesus. So Second Corinthians is like a school for spiritual leadership in the footsteps of Jesus. And this is not just for professionals. Well, I'm not like called to be an apostle or even a pastor or whatever, a missionary. Well, this is actually for all of us because we will all have some degree of influence and leadership. So no matter how small that might be or big, we're all called to actually, if you're a Christian, lay your life down in Christ-like love for the good of other people. What does that look like? How do you do it? Paul is going to give us a beautiful example through this book. We need examples of what this... Looks like, don't we? There are precious few examples of this. So we can't afford, family, brothers and sisters, we can't afford not to pay attention to Paul's example here in 2 Corinthians as we spend some time with him over these next few months. Because if we don't pay attention, if we don't let this book sink in and change us, we're going to actually risk perpetuating the present situation where there are so few examples of this. We don't want to perpetuate that, do we? God has us going through this book right now for a reason, to actually raise up and equip more examples, more Christ-like ministers, people that know how to love well, that live this cruciform life and do cruciform ministry following Jesus. So we can't just complain about the lack of Christ-like leadership in our lives, whether in the past or in the present. Armchair critique is easy. It's cheap. God wants all of us to get out of the armchair onto the battlefield. So this world is falling apart for lack of leaders who are willing to lay down their lives for the good of others. We, as Christians, are called to be salt and light. We're the light of the world. So we are in Second Corinthians right now to help us with this. <laughs> so Tyler read the text. I don't know how familiar you are with what's going on, Paul's relationship with this church, but you might have felt a little lost, like, what in the world's going on? Well, you've got to know what's going on if you're going to know what's going on in Second Corinthians and really benefit from it. So we've got to understand the background to the letter, or we're going to be lost um, as we read through especially certain places, and, and this first chapter here is one of those places. So what's going on? Well, Paul informed the Corinthians at the end of what we have as First Corinthians in our Bibles, in chapter 16, that he planned to visit them after, visiting, or after passing through Macedonia. Okay? So he let them know that Timothy was on his way. Well, what happened after 1 Corinthians is that Timothy got there and found that the church was in much worse shape than expected. So these false apostles crept in, leading the church astray. This rebellion is brewing against Paul like an opposition party. Okay? It's gaining traction. So Paul decided to drop everything and put his visit to Macedonia on hold and go right away. So he figured this visit would set things straight and he could, he could go to Macedonia and then visit him again on the way back. But when he arrived... He was attacked by this opposition party, okay, by some who had gained influence. And there's this this strong attack among some, and then there's widespread distrust and suspicion um, in the church. So in the face of that kind of rebellion, Paul actually withdrew. He left Corinth, and he went back to Ephesus. He didn't go to Macedonia, changed his plans. And he sat down, and weeping, he wrote this tear-filled letter that was very strong, pretty severe call to repentance, and he sent it with Titus to call the church to repentance to, to seek to win them back. So Paul's anxious about how they're going to respond, and eventually he hears from Titus that they, by and large, received the letter well, and on the whole, they, the majority of the people had repented. So now Paul is writing 2 Corinthians to a repentant majority... And yet there's still a rebellious minority, which is why chapters 10 to 13 take a little stronger tone because that's aimed more at that rebellious minority. And actually, he also, as you'll see through the letter, we'll even see it here this morning, even though the majority had repented, they were still kind of standoffish. There was like this residual effect from the influence of the false apostles and their criticisms of Paul. They were still kind of holding him at arm's length. They, they probably were still wrestling with feelings of being ashamed of him as their spiritual father. You know, he's just not that great of a speaker, and he's kind of weak, and he suffers a lot. And I... So let's look at our passage here. Look at verses 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians 1. You see what he says here. He says, We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us so you've gotten it and you've turned but i don't think you totally get it you haven't come all the way back okay he he writes something similar in chapter 6 just flip ahead to chapter 6 and you'll see it here chapter 6 verses 11 to 13 we have spoken freely to you corinthians our heart is wide open you are not restricted by us but you are restricted in your own affections In return, I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. I'm like your spiritual father. I love you. Open your hearts to us. Okay, so he's writing to explain things, to try to, like, allay their their concerns, their suspicions, and to just kind of draw them in, that they would trust him and, and know that he's had their good at heart the whole way along. He wants to win them back fully. So he's just been attacked and criticized and undermined. How, how do you respond? How would you respond? How do you respond to criticism? How have you responded to criticism? Once again, Paul's explanations here, his, the way he relates to the Corinthians, is so instructive. We need this. We are so quick to like, we want to get the last word. We're defending ourselves for the sake of our own reputation. That's not Paul, what Paul's doing here. He's actually totally others-oriented. He's totally focused, not on his own reputation, but their well-being. Because he's died. This is cruciform ministry. It doesn't matter. I, I don't count my life of worth, of any value, but only that I may fulfill my ministry. So, first off, what does he do? He explains his motives and his manner. Look at verse 12. And this is instructive. This should be instructive for us. So he says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That's just purity of motives. Not by earthly, kind of fleshly, selfish wisdom. Wisdom in my own interest, my own selfish interest. But by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So there's certainly a side glance to the so called super apostles here who were very quick to boast. They boasted in their resume, their competency. You know, these are the kind of guys that would name drop to impress. They're boasting of their accomplishments in order to gain a following. And the Corinthians, that were way too worldly oriented, were like, oh, wow, so impressive in their following, like lemmings. So Paul and company boast instead. In their integrity, and in their sincerity, and in the divine source of their strength and adequacy, this is—it's by the grace of God that we do this. They're boasting in the Lord, just like what He said in Chapter One of First Corinthians: "Let him who boasts boast in the Lord." So, secondly, here He says, "I've got nothing to hide. Like I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you guys. <laughs> like it's evident." that the story, it all lines up. Like, go back, read the letters again. I'm not lying. Look at verse 13. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge. There's no surprises. I just want you to fully acknowledge my heart for you and see that you are being led astray. I hope you fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So Paul's just wanting to allay any lingering suspicions, okay? He wants them to stand before the Lord one day, not ashamed of Paul, but boasting in how God used Paul to bring them to Jesus. We love this guy. We're so thankful for him because, Lord, you used him to bring us to you. And Paul, not you know, patting himself on the back, but they are his crown and joy. Like, they're his boast. His, his life, this is his life. This is what he's living for. So, he doesn't want his labor to be in vain. He doesn't want to be ashamed that he's just wasted his labor at the end. So, look at verse 15. He explains why. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So because he was sure, look back at verse 14, that they would be his boast one day, and him theirs on the day of the Lord, at Jesus' return, he was committed to their well-being. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. And then I wanted to have two chances to visit you so that you could get twice the grace. He wanted to visit twice, once on the way to Macedonia, once on the way back. But on account of their rebellion, their sin, it was not to be. So Paul didn't vacillate due to, you know, fickleness. He just woke up on the wrong side of the bed one morning. He's like, "Ah, I don't feel like going back. It wasn't fear. Like, ooh, they scared me when I showed up. It wasn't selfish disregard. He doesn't make his plans in a selfish, worldly way. Ah, maybe something better came up. No, his change of plans was a reflection of God's long-suffering mercy. Paul's faithfulness was a reflection of the faithfulness of God through Christ. Look at how he reasons in verse 17. This is point number two, God's yes in Christ. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no even the fact that I changed my plans, that they were differently than I, different than I originally intended, it was because I wanted the promises of God to be yes for you. I didn't want to judge you prematurely even though that would have vindicated me. Why did I withdraw, go back to Ephesus and write you this tearful letter? Because I wanted you to have all the promises of God. I didn't want you to wander away from Christ. Like what was making Paul willing to suffer and lay down his life and his reputation and his comfort? The gospel. The gospel of the crucified Messiah. That's why he did what he did. Look at verse 19. Because for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, we, Silvanus and Timothy and I, he was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. Because all the promises of God find their yes in him. So, what Paul is saying is, to tie this in with last week, Paul's grounding his MO, the way that he operates in ministry, in God's MO. The way God operates. God said yes to us in Christ. So that all the promises, could find their yes in Christ for us. Really good news. Like, what does that mean? God's yes to the promises. Well, let's go back to all this terrible, exploitative leadership all around us. You know, stuff like this, the ugliness, the kind of darkness of this world can actually serve to make the gospel that much sweeter to us. It's kind of what happened in the Old Testament. All these promises, and here's a leader. Oh, oh, David, maybe he's going to be the... Ah... Oh, oh, maybe this... oh, All of these leaders just ultimately failed. And what do they do? They leave you with longing. And it's a setup for the coming of the Messiah in whom all the grace, all the promises are actually yes for us. So we want love, right? You want love? Like, don't you long for the perfect marriage? Whether you're married or not. Don't you long for the perfect marriage? Well, guess what? It's, it's yours. It's yes for you in Christ. In Christ, who loved you and gave himself up for you to make you his own forever. Don't you want to be involved in meaningful work led by worthy, inspiring leaders <laughs> Don't you wish you had a boss whose character was honorable, inspiring, and who created opportunity for you to participate in meaningful and satisfying labor? Well, guess what? It's yes for you in Christ. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that labor for the Lord is not in vain. Don't work to please men. You serve the Lord Christ. We want and need wisdom, don't we? We want to know how to live well. Don't you wish you had a counselor who is truly empathetic and totally competent? Empathetic to know how hard it is to live well, competent to help you out of your ruts and onto the path of a life well lived? Well, guess what? It's yes in Christ. We have this sympathetic high priest. We can come with confidence to God and receive the mercy and grace to help us, to help us in our need. And then we've got a pioneer, a trailblazer. We're supposed to set our eyes, fix our eyes on him, and run the race that's set before us. So he's this sympathetic counselor, and he is the leader that we need to follow. Don't you want to be led and protected? I mean, our safety, our well-being, our future, it just seems so fragile. Don't you wish we had a political leader who who would lead wisely in justice and in righteousness, no corruption, no poor and vulnerable people just following through the cracks, falling through the cracks. I mean, we've just been looking for a savior, a leader, a hero since the garden. And we keep being let down. We keep being failed. But to us, a child has been born. To us, a son has been given, and the government is now upon his shoulder. And his name is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will Do this. All of the promises of God have found their yes in Christ. The promise of Genesis Genesis 3.15. Your offspring's going to crush the serpent's head. Yes in Christ at the cross. He's defanged. He slew the dragon to rescue us. The promise of Deuteronomy 18, 15, this prophet that would come. So Moses was great, but Moses failed. He didn't even get into the promised land. But a prophet was going to come, Deuteronomy 18. Listen to him. You want to hear from God, all you have to do is listen to Jesus. He's that prophet. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 to David of this forever kingdom. The king we've always longed for and needed. If you want to be led by omnipotent benevolence, ruled by righteousness and peace, all we've got to do is bow the knee to King Jesus. His kingdom come. Yes? How about the promise of Isaiah 53, the the kind of foundation of it all? He's provided full atonement for all of our guilt and all of our shame, all of our failures like we need forgiveness and cleansing for all of that. He is the one who made the sacrifice once for all. All of the promises of God are yes in and through Jesus the Messiah. In and through Christ God is for us. That's what this means. Do you believe that God is for you? He's for us. He's saying yes to all of his promises. He wants to give them all to us. Romans 8:32. If God did not spare his only son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things? So he's for us, not against us. He's not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Based on whether or not you checked off your boxes today. No, the faithful God has overcome our faithfulness with his cruciform, steadfast love and faithfulness on the cross. Jesus' God's yes so that all of his promises are ours. So that not only meets all of our deepest needs, which it does, and, and that's where it all starts, it also changes how we do ministry, how we love others. So let's watch that transition now. Point number three, Paul's amen through Christ. This is the response to that amen, the way that Paul lived his life the way that Paul did ministry. Look at verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? No, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, because all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So all the promises, the things that we need most in Christ, God said yes. Paul then, in the way that he loves, the way that he ministers to the Corinthians, says, amen, these promises are for these sheep. Like, let it be so. That's what he's saying. So Corinthians, Paul is speaking as their shepherd over them, amen. All those promises that God said yes to, amen to them. So be it for them. I'm not giving up on them. I'm going after them. I'm saying amen to those promises for those I love in Corinth, and I don't care if it kills me. I'm going to fight for their faith. You see how that flows? The gospel shapes the way. It's his message, but it shapes the way in which He loves and serves. Look at verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So it was the very yes in Christ. And Paul's confidence that it applied to the Corinthians, which is amazing because they were a mess, right? How did you have such confidence that they would respond But it was that very confidence that led Paul to change his plans, to spare them, to give them a chance to repent so that they could come back to him and to Jesus. So Paul's plans actually have everything to do with his confidence in God's faithfulness and his desire to fight for the Corinthians' faith and joy. So do you see the irony in this passage? Have you seen it yet? In the criticism that Paul got from, you know, these people that were undermining him? Oh, he's he's a vacillator. You know, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He says he's going to do this, then he goes to this, 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 Why did he change his plans? It was their sin. It's not his, him being a vacillator. It's their sin. Isn't it crazy that that actually got traction there? Are you guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? Hello? Yes? No? Go ahead and nod no, if it, or nod, say no, if uh, it's not. So have you ever experienced this, like in seeking to love somebody? Maybe a child? This happens fairly regularly. Or somebody else that you're ministering to, you just can't seem to win. Has that ever happened to you? You sacrifice for them, you bend over backwards, it's out of love, and still you're criticized. Anybody? Anybody? Well, at least for three of us, this is encouraging. So we need Paul. Because what are we tempted to do when that happens? We start crossing our arms, and we start backing up. We start withdrawing. And then, you know, we start putting people on trial in our minds. We're kind of building a case. Why do we start doing that? Well, because we're going to condemn them. critical spirit does right we're really good at becoming prosecuting attorney judge and jury boom gavel falls in our mind so do you see how this is a big like that dynamic in our minds and hearts oh fine that's what you're gonna we back up cross our arms and condemn someone That is a big anti gospel no forming in our hearts toward that other person rather than a gospel powered yes and amen over that person because we're fighting for their joy in the faith. So, Paul doesn't get bitter, amazingly, he doesn't get jaded. We need this example. He shows us how to love sacrificially without the need for retaliation or the last word or (laughs) if we're going to get the last word, let's let the last word be gospel victory, like won through Christ-like suffering and love. Like I'm going to keep after you for the last word, not for my win, but for your win. So the gospel changes how we treat people, how we minister to people. So just like God is not hot and cold toward us, Jesus is God's yes to us, yes to all his promises. So Paul hasn't been hot and cold toward the Corinthians. He hasn't been, I love him, I hate him. I love him, I'm tired of him. No, everything that Paul has done has been for their good, for their faith, for their joy. So ministry is like saying amen to the grace and the good promises of the gospel over other people's lives in Jesus' name. No matter what the cost, that's what you should look for in a spiritual leader. So point number four is brief, what to look for, what to pray for in a spiritual leader. This is it. You remember when Jesus made the distinction between good shepherding and hired hand in John 10? He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So this kind of Christ-like shepherding, leadership, ministry is what we need to look for and it's what we need to pray for. In fact, flip over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what elders is supposed to be like in the context of the local church. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you. Literally, that's according to God. So it's the way God shepherds. He does it willingly, not begrudgingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So this is cruciform ministry. This is what we ought to look for. This is what we ought to pray for. This is what we ought to seek to breed here. This church, like, let's pray that our church would be like a seedbed for Christ like living and Christ like leadership, Christ like ministry. Lord. So, one final description of what this cruciform ministry looks like. Point number four, cruciform ministry, workers for joy. Look at verse 23. Back in 2 Corinthians 1, take a look at verse 23. Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming to Corinth. It was a yes for you that made me say no to coming back too quickly. This wasn't vacillation. It wasn't cowardice. It was love. I'm dead to me. Like, I've died daily for you. Don't you see that? wasn't being a coward and running away. I wasn't trying to spare my reputation. I was trying to spare you from judgment. And then immediately, he's so sensitive. Paul's so sensitive here. Imagine if they're still like suspicious of him. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you. What might, you, what might rise up in your heart if you're suspicious of a leader talking that way? Oh, oh, power trip. Like, oh, to spare us. What does he say? Not that we lord it over your faith. Remember that First Peter 5 thing? Not domineering over those under your charge, but proving to be an example. Oh, you're threatening us, are you? So despair spare us. No, no, no. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Faith and joy. Like you kind of expect him to say, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your joy. But he says, in your faith. So your joy in the faith is so vital to you actually standing firm. And that's worth fighting for. So as we draw this to a close, what do you say, Bethel? What are we going to say over the lives of those that we have influence over, that we are called to love and serve and minister to? Big yes, big no. Amen back away with our arms crossed. Well, listen, we actually ought to listen first. Before we say anything over the lives of others, let's just stop and first listen. What did God say to you and to me? Us foolish, sinful, rebellious, prone to wander, sheep. What did he say? He didn't thunder down with this, No, of condemnation, just slamming the door shut in our face. No, listen. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in him, it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So now what do you say? (laughs) Are you going to say yes to the joy of others Or only yes to your superficial comfort. This is like really practical. I'm talking about this kind of stuff happens like multiple times a day. What are we going to do? What are we going to choose? To save our lives and back away or lay down our lives empowered by the fact that Jesus has laid down his for us? Death is at work in us so that life is at work in you. What are we going to say? What are we going to say yes to? Our comfort or their comfort? Our superficial comfort or their deep comfort? Like chapter 1 we looked at last week. So the world is full of failed leadership, full of self-serving, exploitative leadership. It cannot, it must not be this way in the church. We march to the beat of a different drummer. We We follow a crucified Savior. So cruciform ministry is always seeking the good of others, even at great cost to ourselves. We are workers for joy. How about that for a job description? Like, can we all just own that? In your community group, in your family, in your extended family, in your workplace, like you are a worker for joy. Children's ministry, fighting for those kids, their their deepest joy in Jesus. We're workers for joy. Workers for joy that as many people as possible may stand firm in their faith until we all hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Amen. Let's close by singing a final song here. Father, we need lots of grace to be able to live like this, and you have given us grace upon grace through Christ. So help us to listen to that loud, resounding amen, that huge yes that you have spoken through Christ to all of your promises. And believing that good news... Help us to willingly give our lives day in and day out so that we can utter the amen to you over the lives of others for their temporal and eternal good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.